Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocalint Podcast. The EE Pocalint Awards shortlist is out and that means the voting has started. But how do we go about picking the nominees and how does the voting actually work? Chris is here with me to discuss the details of the awards and what they mean. Meanwhile, I've been chatting to Paul Franklin, two times Oscar and BAFTA winning visual effects man who's been behind global blockbusters such as Blade Runner 2049, The Dark Knight Trilogies, Interstellar, Inception and many more about how technology is changing the visual effects industry, what it's like to work with Christopher Nolan and what we can expect the next big thing is going to be. And our resident gamer Rick Henderson walks us through the new Nintendo Switch Lite that's just come out. Is it as good as the original? Have they cut too many corners to get that price down? And what's the verdict on whether you should get one? So Chris, back to you. What does the awards mean for you? The awards really are the culmination of all our hard work through the year. And we've been running the awards for 16 years this year. But it really brings everything together, all of the work that goes into the year, reviewing so many different types of products. And it's a great way to round up and finish off the year because these are coming up in November. And it's a great way for us to focus all of our efforts on saying these are the best, the really, really best things that have happened this year. So sure, let's start by talking about exactly how the voting works. So the voting is split into two distinct sort of streams. We have 90% of the vote is counted for from the experts that we get involved, and they're from a number of leading tech publications across the world. And then we have 10% of the vote, which is determined by the listeners, the public, the readers of the site. And we do that for a number of reasons. One is we believe that the experts clearly know what they're talking about. We do as well. But it's we want to get the wider industry feel for how good these products really are. But we also understand that there are a lot of people out there that use these products day in, day out. We want them to be able to have their say and enough of a say that in previous years when we've done it this way, that it does actually tip the balance. It can make a difference in how those products have been rewarded and which ones haven't. But for the public not to get, and the fanboys sometimes in some eagerness to not get over the top and really destroy the, the capability of, of the experts. Fantastic. So let's just talk about how we come up with the list this is, a pro- this is a process that has taken several months to arrive at this point where we currently have the shortlist to be voted on. But there's quite a long process that goes into this as well. I think there? there is. I think, as you know, we sat down with Mike, our reviews editor at PocketLearn, and we've, it's, it's a long day when we're trying to work out the shortlist of what we think is good and what we, and what we don't. And I think one of the things there is that sense of, you know, Going back to the traditional values that, that Pocket has whenever it comes to reviewing any product, it's, you know, does it does it do what it says it's going to do? Does it work? Is it is it kind of game-changing? Is there a sense of this actually is going to make a difference to people's lives? And I think, you know, I know we, we had quite a few arguments on the day about, you know, well, should we include this or should we include that? And, and, and those last-minute changes to, to make the shortlist. And, and so I think that's, that's, to me, that's always the exciting bit is that sense of we've come up with, you know, six, five to six nominations per category, which we can then put out to, to, you know, the industry as a whole and to, and to the public and say, look, these are the best products. And I think what's really nice about our voting system as well is it's not saying this is the best one, this is the second best, third best, whatever. Each product, when you come to vote, can get five stars, you know, and you could go into one category and give everything five stars because you think it's amazing. It's that sense of each product is is rated on its own individual merit, which I, I really like. And I think that, you know, that kind of then culminates through to the best gadget 
of of the year, you know, the product of the year, which is kind of then the winner of everything, which is, you know, again, we've had some fantastic winners in the past. We've also, you know, the nature of this thing, we've had some things that you thought are amazing at the time, but, but perhaps haven't turned out to be uh, when it goes forward. I think that's one of the interesting things about going through the awards process is just how good so many of these products are these days. I remember when we were doing it years ago, we'd often have a category where there were some things in there that really weren't quite up to the standard of some of the others. But as technology has progressed and these devices have matured, we're now going in where we have lots and lots of devices that are extremely good. And as you've just said, they're all winners anyway. They're all fantastic. Everything that gets shortlisted for the Pocketlint Awards is already a fantastic product. Even if you could just go to the nominees and you look at those products and you, you know, pocket-lint.com forward slash awards and you can look at the nominees and, and look at the voting. But it's that sense of you're not going to get a duff product there anyway. And I think that's certainly one of the things I've, I've felt over the years that we've been doing this, Chris, is that sense of the list gets harder and harder and harder to create each time because the level of quality that we're seeing from some of these manufacturers now is just is outstanding. I remember, you know, over the years, you've kind of looked and think, oh, God, we're really going to scrape the barrel for this category, um, but, you know, <laughs> just because there was a felt a need. And I felt this this year, certainly it was, wow, should we, you know, we had that conversation, didn't we? Should we, should we include eight nominations per category, you know, or 10 nominations per category? And after a while, you, you suddenly think, well, okay, you've got to create a cutoff somewhere but i i really do think that you know this year is 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 certainly a stellar class for for best in products and which uh which category do you think is the hottest which is your favorite i it's tough i think you know the the best smart home stuff is is really interesting we're still seeing a, a sense of of that market and that industry trying to find its feet and and how it works um you know the Best headphones and in-ear headphones are certainly, you know, in-ear headphones now have, for me have, have really come on leaps and bounds over the last couple of years. You know, we're, we're seeing devices that instantly connect to your to your phone, uh, a fantastic sound in quality. You know, you can go running with and all those kind of things. So I'm kind of looking for that. I know you're going to say phones, aren't you? That's that's clearly your favourite. I yeah, I am going to say phones because one of the one of the great things about presenting these awards is seeing the reaction when you start when you come to the phone section, because even though we cover a whole range of things and even though there's a lot of excitement and into many in many ways, there is a lot more movement in other areas of the market. Phones are still core to, to so much of what people are doing all the time. So I just like the thrill of, of being there when the best smartphone is announced. Yeah, I totally agree. So it's probably worth us quickly recapping how you can get involved. The public voting is open until the Sunday, the 3rd of November, with the announcement of the winners being made on Thursday, the 14th of November at a awards party in London. You can vote for any of the nominees in all of the categories by going to www.pocket-lint.com forward slash awards. Still to come, Rick gives us his verdict on the new Nintendo Switch Lite. The Switch was always meant to be both a home console and a portable games console, but I've always found that it's a little too heavy and a little too clunky to be truly a portable games console. Paul Franklin co-founded DNEG, one of the world's biggest digital effects studios in 1998. He's gone on to win two Oscars, two BAFTAs and various other awards during his illustrious career. 
His films include Interstellar, The Batman Trilogy, Inception, Blade Runner 2049, Harry Potter and Venom. And it doesn't stop there either. Franklin and his team are now working on the likes of the new James Bond, No Time to Die, Ghostbusters 2020 and a remake of Dune. I started by asking him what his upcoming talk to the Royal Institute of British Architects was all about. Well, I'm, I'm giving a talk as part of a programme called The Architect Underground, which is a, it's not just about architecture, it's about all sorts of different things. So, for instance, this week, uh, Christopher Frayling is talking about his love of Sergio Leone's movie Once Upon a Time in the West. And uh, the opening talk was given by Giles Martin, Martin talking about how he remixed Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for its 50th anniversary uh, because his father, George Martin, was the Beatles producer in the 60s. And what I'm talking about is actually probably more related to what Reba does than perhaps some of the other talkers, speakers because, I, as I say, I, I design visual effects for Hollywood movies, but I've been lucky enough to work on some films that actually have involved architecture and architectural ideas. Uh, in particular, I'm talking about the work that I did on the film Inception back in 2010, uh, which is uh, a film famously about people stealing ideas from other people's dreams and invading their sleeping minds. Uh, but architecture is a theme that runs all the way through the film because the and that's that fantastic Paris scene, isn't it? Where you, yeah, it's that's all right, kind yeah. of folding in exactly. And then also, I'm going to talk about. Uh, the work we did for the film Interstellar. I mean, both these films were directed by Christopher Nolan, who made the Dark Knight movies. And uh, Interstellar features an extraordinary constructed space at the end of the film called the Tesseract, which is as much about architecture and design as it was about uh, theoretical physics and science fiction. And so how much of that is is you and the sort of saying, well, we can achieve this or we can't achieve this, or I've got this great idea for this building. And how much is that the director's vision? Well, in the case of, for instance, Inception, that's, it's very much Chris's film. Chris Nolan wrote the script. He'd been thinking about it for a very long time since he was a teenager, in fact, and had long wanted to make a film uh, which investigated dream space and the idea of being able to uh, communally share dreams between uh, uh, people who are asleep, and um, he when he when he comes to you with a script, uh, the script is very descriptive. You know, it tells you the story very well, but it's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you how you're supposed to go about doing things, and it doesn't uh, devote too much time to the visual description of what's in the film. So, in the famous scene where. Ellen Page's character is manipulating the dream version of Paris and starts folding the streets up into a box. Um, in the script, it pretty much described it just as that. You know, she looks down the street, it begins to rise up, it folds over itself, it turns into a box, they walk up the insides of it. Uh, but there was no description of the mechanism. You know, should it be mechanical? Should it be plastic? Should it feel like everything was bending and twisting? Is it magical? Is it matter of fact? Uh, none of these things are described in there because Chris wants to engage you as an artist, as a collaborator in the process, and that you can bring your own perspective to uh, uh, to how to tell the story visually. And of course, that's from the point of view of me as a visual effects artist, that's a very exciting proposition because yeah. you need to partner with somebody there. And so in the case of that scene, I suggested something that we'd both seen together whilst we were making Batman Begins a few years earlier in Paris, in, not Paris, in Chicago. Uh, there's a scene where we raise all the bridges on the Chicago River, which is playing as the river through Gotham City. 
And if you were standing in the street uh, in one of these massive Art Deco canyons in that city, uh, with this 1930s skyscrapers uh, rising up either side, and you looked down the street and you saw the bridge rising, it was as if the whole world was folding on a hinge because the bridge takes the sidewalks, the street lamps, all the road sure. markings go with it. They're all fixed it. And I said, well, how about we take that idea and extend it? And we have a series of these linked hinges, and that's how we'll roll the city up because the character, uh, Ellen Page's character, Ariadne, is, a, is an architect, but she's an architecture student, and she is thinking about things in a, in a logical engineering-based way. And so this made sense. This is how she would manipulate the world. And from there, we, you know, we ran with it and, uh, and came up with the, uh, the finished shot. And so how do you think the, I mean, obviously the industry has changed drastically since you started working in it in the late 80s. To, mm. Has technology made it easier or harder? Are, are clients more demanding? Say, oh, I'm sure you can just whiz that up in a computer somewhere. Or has it made it well, easier because it's allowed you to do more things? I mean, there is this sort of, there is a sort of uh, a misconception uh, amongst the general public that it's all done by computers and that we are, there's somehow no, not as much artistry involved and skill involved in creating these images as there was in the past when people made things, physical miniatures and you know, painted things onto glass and uh, hand animated things. Because you can obviously see the, the skill and the technique that goes into that because you can see somebody working directly on the thing that's going to be on the screen and the, the, the I think the the assumption is that a bunch of guys sitting at computers just tapping away on the keyboards are just you know you know doing what other people do with computers, which is just entering data. And that's you know nothing could be further from the truth. It's incredibly labor intensive. If you if you watch a big Hollywood action movie, a superhero film, and you sit through the end credits, if you're one of those few people that hangs around in the cinema to do that, you'll see a block of thousands of names come up in the visual effects section of the credits because that's how many people it took to make it. It's Generally, it's two or three times as many people in the VFX block as there is in the rest of the movie put together. That's how many crew work on it. Recently, I, worked, I did the movie Venom for uh, Sony, I had fifteen hundred artists in my team working. That's on a lot that. of people. <laughs> it's a lot of people. So um, uh, to make that film, and so there is this. I think the, you do get a misconception that the computers make it easier. What the computers do is they extend the reach of the filmmaker, because of course now the computers allow us to create um, a near seamless illusion of photographic reality, particularly when it comes to things like architecture and vehicles and landscapes and that sort of thing. Organic creatures like human beings are a little bit more difficult, uh, but they're getting better and better all the time. Uh, but it's, it takes skill and artistry to make this work because the computers, are, for all their sophistication, are actually just dumb pieces of metal and they won't do anything unless you tell them. And do you, do you think so, there's become an over-reliance upon upon visual effects to fix everything after the fact you know is it you know you're seeing actors being brought back in their younger selves or even back from the dead or corrections being made or oh we'll just you know do you are you finding the directors are saying we'll just fix we'll get their guys to fix that later it's easier the way i always answer that question is that there are fundamentally two different types of filmmaking there are good films and there are bad films and there have always been bad films that uh that use technique inappropriately, whether they were made yesterday or 50 years ago. And the, uh, I think there's certainly a case that you, know, you might see a film in the cinema and you think, well, that didn't work. And the, the effects were just you know, a, a bunch of stuff and nonsense that didn't really tell the story. They were just there to grandstand. 
and uh, provide spectacle. You know, the movie becomes more of a theme park ride than it does a, a proper cinematic story. And that's just lazy filmmaking. It's people who haven't really thought about their story and how they're going to support it. And then maybe they try and dress it up later on uh in uh with with visual effects at the end of the day i mean that used to happen back in the 1970s and 1960s um there are for every epic uh film like spartacus that we can remember there were dozens of second rate sword and sandal movies with huge sets and casts of thousands which are completely forgotten now so uh, I i don't think anything's really changed in filmmaking in that respect i think there is Again, there is a misconception uh, amongst filmmakers who haven't invested the time in teaching themselves how the technique works, uh, where there is this assumption, oh, well, it's all very easy. It's just computers, isn't it? Which comes back to what I was talking about earlier on. So part of my job is to educate people about how it works and say, look, we're, we're people with a filmmaking sensibility. We happen to work with a lot of high technology. But really, it's it's me and my colleagues, uh, the, the people who are going to make the difference to your film, not the not the dozens of computers that we've got sitting in the basement. And what do you think? You're you've obviously worked on a lot of films. You've worked, you know, you talked about the Batman movies, you know, the Nolan Batman mm. movies, obviously Inception, Interstellar, Venom. There's, I'm sure the list. I know the list goes on and on beyond that as well. What has been your mm. biggest challenge in terms of you know a director coming to you and saying? We want this. Can you make it happen? And and you've gone mm, okay. Scratched your head a little bit, and then and then made it happen. Well, the biggest I think the biggest challenges are always the creative ones um, in terms of figuring out how to tell a story. And then you know the the, the best films are always ones where the story comes first, and then you uh, think about the technique that you're going to use to uh, enhance and extend the range of that story. And in Interstellar, I mentioned it earlier on. There's a thing called the Tesseract in Interstellar which is this uh, extraordinary um, uh, constructed higher dimensional space, which uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, Cooper, finds himself in at the end of the film after he's passed over the event horizon into the, uh, into the interior of the black hole. And that scene in the film started as a conversation I had with Chris Nolan at the very beginning of 2013, in which Chris pitched to me the story for the film and explained how Cooper ends up inside the black hole. And he ends up in a space where he can see time as a physical dimension. And what would time look like if it was a physical dimension that you could navigate in the same way that we can navigate the three physical dimensions that we're used to, up, down, front, back, left, right? Uh, What would that look like? And more importantly, how could he build it as a physical set Mm. so he could put put actors onto it? And, you know, the the answer to that question was, I, I don't know. I really don't know what that looks like, but it's a fascinating challenge. It's something that I would, uh, you know, love to get into. And uh, uh, we it's kicked off a whole process of uh, creative investigation where we looked at the way that uh, artists and particularly photographers, how the photography has been used to represent the passage of time uh, over the years. And we came across a technique uh, called uh, slit scan photography and slit scan photography is familiar to most people in the photo finish pictures you see from race courses you know when the horses are crossing the line and you see yeah. this quite extraordinary looking picture where the horses generally look pretty normal but the background is just a series of horizontal streaks and what it, the camera is actually doing is it's recording um, a very thin slit of image which is directly over the finish line 
And as the exposure is happening, basically the negative in the camera is moving horizontally past that slit. So anything that passes behind the slit gets recorded onto the negative. And uh, as the negative moves off to the right-hand side of the frame, it takes that bit of the image with it. And so moving objects get recorded quite normally. As the horse passes by the slit, it gets recorded onto the negative. But anything that's static, that's not moving in the background, becomes a long, streaked-out, horizontal stripe. So that the picture is a... The, the horizontal axis of the picture is a record of the duration of the exposure, which could last several seconds or even longer. Uh, and But one discrete place in space, which is the just the finish line of the horse race. Whereas a, a regular photograph is a large area of space represented at one discrete moment mm. in time. So that was uh, a fascinating... Uh, observation and that was a real breakthrough that led to us thinking of this idea of the time trail streaking out from all the objects that are inside the room which is at the heart of the tesseract uh, which then we realized related to something we'd learned about from einstein's physics einstein had this concept of a thing called the world line uh, which is a, a trail of matter that stretches off in space-time behind us into the past and off into the future as well and so that we all have these trails of matter following us uh, through our lives. In fact, every object in the universe does. And so the Tesseract ultimately is a, is a, um, uh, a stylized, abstracted representation of, uh, of Einstein's ideas uh, through the agency of slit-scan photography. And that's what we ended up with in the so film. I'm, so I'm not going to lie. That, I'm, I'm, I'm actually grateful that you just told us that because now the ending actually <laughs> makes sense to me. So that's great. Yeah. You have to work at it. You see, this is the thing. We didn't want to make a film that just spoon feeds everything. It's, uh, Chris's films always engage the intelligence of the audience. He never underestimates the audience. Um, and uh, the so many mainstream Hollywood films just treat the audience as the lowest common denominator and try to make it as simple and as easy to comprehend. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the secret of Chris's success is that he makes intelligent people. He assumes that the people in the cinema are, are, are interested and, you know, want to engage their brains. Now, that sounds like a moment where you're quite proud of that, that sequence and being able to crack that and all the other stuff. Do you have a, a sequence from, and I know this is like choosing which one's your favorite child, but do you have a sequence from, from a movie that you've done? You think, wow, actually, that's great. I can watch that just over and over again. I, you know, I nailed that one. It's brilliant. And people have really enjoyed it. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because what happens is when you work on a film, you're so intimately involved with it for such a, a long period of time that uh, immediately in the, in the immediate aftermath of the film being completed, you, you can't really get any distance from it. You watch the thing and all you can think about is, God, that was really hard to do. And, oh, that didn't work quite as well as I expected. And, and you're not really watching the film. You're still watching the technical aspects of the movie. Um, so recently I watched the, uh, all three of the dark Knight movies in, uh, on a run with my, with my sons at home who had not seen them before. And, uh, it was the first time I'd watched Batman begins in particular for about 10 years. And, um, I was really just, you know, taken away by the film, carried away by it because it was, uh, it's great just movie. a great film. And I was now watching it because frankly, in some areas of the film, I couldn't remember what hmm. we'd done. So it just was, it was just rolled past. Like uh, it was a great, a great cinematic story. And it's a beautifully crafted film. I think it's got a lot of heart. So that's one I'm uh, particularly proud of having been on. But I, you know, I feel that way about 
pretty much everything that I've worked on. I've, I've been lucky to work on on a series of really great films over the years. Now, we've talked about some of your past work. You're obviously a busy man. You've got some future work coming up, including the new James Bond, No Time to Die, Ghostbusters 2020, yep. Wonder Woman 1984, mm-hmm. and even Dune, which was uh, an amazing film mm. to begin with all those years ago, but considered you know one of those films that was almost impossible to make at the time. Uh, can you share anything uh, about the special effects we're going to see in these movies? Well, I think the each of the films we're talking about, obviously, um, they are, you know, they the, 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 what you see on the screen ultimately reflects the intention of the filmmakers. And obviously, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Sure. But, uh, tell people too much about what's going on. But I think you can imagine that something like Denis Villeneuve's Dune is going to be something special. If anybody saw um, Blade Runner 2049, which we worked with uh, worked with Denis on that film, you know, he brings a particularly unique, very sort of understated vision uh, to, well, understated treatment, should I say, of, uh, of spectacular themes. And so the way that the the world of uh, of future Los Angeles, 20, Los Angeles in 2049 was presented in that film, has this beautiful tonal quality where it just feels, it's very matter of fact, it's just there, you know, it's the, it's what I always describe as the extraordinary shown in an ordinary manner, which makes it feel so much more immediate and you can imagine yourself into that space. And, you know, I think that's very much what Denis is going to bring to, uh, bring to Dune. Um, Obviously, the old David Lynch film is one of my favorite films. I, I'm a huge fan of David Lynch mm. as a director. I love all of his work, really. There's always something to be gained by watching his films, even the more uh, crazy and, and inaccessible ones. But um, I, don't, you know, I don't think the film that, uh, that is being, the new film is going to be, it's not a remake of that film. This is a new version of Dune. So it means nobody's going to have any blue eyes. That's, that's a shame in itself. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know. You have to, you have to watch the film. Not the key part of the story originally. So uh, that's in the yeah. original novel. The idea is that the spice changes the colour of your eyes. Uh, but uh, uh, you'll have to wait and see. Oh, there we go. Damn, almost got it out of you there. Um, <laughs> so, what do you think? I mean, the final question I have really is: is what's what do you think is in store from from your industry? over the next five years is it going to be just a refining of, of making sure everything works in 4k and 8k and things like that or do you think there's something much bigger on the horizon well the, you know the resolution thing is actually is actually a very serious issue in visual effects because every time the resolution goes up like when we went from 2k to 4k that is a quadrupling of the amount of information that's actually in the picture it's not just a doubling and uh, and that means you have to build a much bigger machine to actually do the visual effects because these things don't scale in a linear fashion you can't just keep adding computers to the render farm uh you suddenly find that oh dear you've exceeded the electricity budget for your building you need to move from where it's got an extra substation to power it and you need more cooling and god knows what else so that's a you know that's an issue that we have to deal with um uh, and it's you know it's not to be underestimated, but I think in creatively the more interesting question is like what is creatively is the future for this? And I think two things will happen is that the sort of bread and butter of visual effects, creating uh, landscapes and buildings and crashing cars and burning forests and giant monsters and that sort of thing, that becomes uh, if not not so much easier but more accessible to a wider range of filmmakers because the price point uh, comes down. And it's, it's not as expensive as it was in the past. Or at least you can do more for the same money, shall we say. 
so mm. we can take it further. So filmmakers who couldn't have accessed these techniques can can get them. And you can see that just in the way that television has changed in the last uh, few years. You know, we recently uh, won an Emmy for our work on Chernobyl, uh, the TV series. We did all the effects for that film, for that TV show. And um, that those are Hollywood standard visual effects, uh, but produced on a television budget. And they really extend the reach of that story, showing you the enormity and you know, the, and giving you the, the, the look and feel of the authentic 1980s Soviet Union. So that's one thing that's going to happen. That's going to kin- and that's already happening, and it will just continue to happen. But I think there's going to be a series of breakthroughs in the next few years, with uh, particularly with digital humans. You know, creating, for instance, Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman. There's a lot of talk about the way that he's managed to use digital effects to. Uh, make younger versions of uh, the principal cast. You know, Robert De Niro is in his seventies. There's a version of De Niro in the film that is he plays a, it as a 27 year old, and it's 70 odd year old De Niro acting as a 27 year old with the face, uh, a re- you know, a reasonably plausible face of a 27 year old, and that is created with uh, with digital effects. Now it's not the 27 year old Robert De Niro because De Niro has physically changed in all sorts of other ways over that time, but it's a it's a younger version of the man as he is today, and we're we're seeing that with sort of Will Smith and Gemini Man, and mm, and yeah. even um, Sean Young in in yeah in Blade Runner that you, the, that you worked on. Yes, yeah, so, so exactly those 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 sorts of things are happening now. You then say, well, why do that? Well, Scorsese's film. It's important to Scorsese, who I trust as a filmmaker, that he wanted the same actor playing this character through different ages, whereas in if you go back to Scorsese's film Goodfellas, um, the Ray Liotta character, when you see him as a young teenager, is played by a different actor, you know, because Ray couldn't mm. play a teenager, um, and that's the way that Scorsese did it. But uh, back then, but now, now he wants to do it with the actual actor if he can, and uh, I think that again it just offers more possibilities to filmmakers. So, so ultimately, the question is not so much about what is it we're going to be able to do in the future, because I think the answer to that is pretty much anything you want. Real question is, why are you doing it? Why does it earn a place in your film? Uh, which comes back to your earlier point about, are there some films where you know the visual effects are just purely you know window dressing to dress up something that doesn't really work as a film? So that's the question filmmakers have to ask themselves. It's a question they've always had to ask themselves, like, why am I building this enormous set? Why am I building the pyramids in Egypt? Uh, is it really necessary to do that? in order to tell my story. The Nintendo Switch burst onto the gaming scene in 2017, rekindling our love for all things Zelda, Mario, and lots more in between. Two years later, and the company has just launched a new Lite version, which makes a number of changes, including removing the ability to detach the controllers and being able to share the content on your TV. But it does bring a new smaller screen and a lower price point. Rick Henderson has been playing with the new console and is here to tell us what he thinks. So, Rick, let's start by saying what you like about the new Switch. Um, A lot of people would focus on uh, the new Switch being cheaper, but the main big selling point for me is actually that it's a lot lighter than the current Switch. Um, The one, you know, the Switch was always meant to be both a home console and a portable games console. But I've always found that it's a little too heavy and a little too clunky to be truly a portable games console. I tried to take mine to E3 last year and I found it just 
got in the way in many respects and mm. just was too much to try and hold on a plane for a significant amount of time. However, the the new Switch Lite is genuinely that. It is very light. So it, is it more like a, a Game Boy Advance? You know, remember Game Boy Advance Color? That was quite that was a very portable device, wasn't it? Well, funny enough, the version I've been testing is actually yellow, which reminds me very much of the Game <laughs> yeah. Boy Color, which uh, came out with Pokemon Yellow many years ago. Um, same kind of yellow. Um, however, it's it's still substantial. It's got a 5.5-inch screen, so you still get a very good playing field. And obviously, it plays all Switch games at their fullest. So it's not a hampered experience, much like, you know, it's not a PS Vita, uh, PS Vita in comparison to a PS4, for example. It right. is a Switch. The difference being is that the Joy-Cons are attached to the sides. They don't come off. Um, and it's more of a, a portable games console that you would only play when on your travels. So kind of only a one-person one experience rather than being able to attach Joy-Con and play with, play with your mate. Absolutely that. Um, you can obviously play multiplayer online and locally if someone else has got a Switch, but you can't play uh, two-player games, not easily on it anyway. Um, it really is a solo experience, but it's a very, very good one. If you want to play something like the new Legend of Zelda uh, Link's Awakening, it is perfect for Which that. Which is great fun. I love that game. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's a beautiful game, that. Um, so it is absolutely perfect for just sitting there um, playing away for hours because there's two ma- another major thing as well of it as, as its lightness. Its battery life is excellent. Um, the one problem, again, of the original Switch, not the reissued one that that they did a couple of months ago, but the very first Switch is that the battery life uh, in completely portable mode was pretty poor. Mm. And so is Whereas, that, And so, if you, you've told us all the good things, if you were to pick out a bad thing, is it that you can't detach those controllers or did you not find that an issue? I don't find that an issue because I think people would buy it with that in mind, I think they would be fully aware of going into it that this doesn't offer the home Switch experience. And also, I'm not entirely certain that motion gaming has ever picked up on the the actual Switch in any significant number anyway. Um, but the but the the caveats to the um, Switch Lite are partly or possibly mainly price. Um, I do think it's too expensive for what it is, um, I, uh, which might... It, if you're wanting to get people in at the ground floor, so to speak, to get them the Switch experience at a lower price than, say, going the whole hog, then £200 for me is too expensive, really. Um, so I think wait for um, things like the Christmas sales or the Black Friday sales that are going to be coming up soon. Um, and, I, and you might see that drop by £20, £30. And then it becomes a very valid proposition. Mm, sort of that. I, mean, I, I see it's you know it's already floating around the one one eighty one eighty six kind of price point. You know something like a one sixty nine one seventy nine would make it more attractive in your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this for me. It's very much a a three DS replacement rather than a um, an alternative to the Nintendo Switch. If you get what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it, because it's a portable. So I think parents who want to get their kid a, a portable games machine so that they're not hogging the TV all the time, <laughs> um, would actually find this a very valid um, purchase because it genuinely feels good to hold. It's got a great screen. It's only 5.5 inches, which is not as great for older eyes, especially when you see tiny little text on the screen. 
Yeah, which um, we know well, Nintendo loves anyway. <laughs> so. Yeah, I did, uh, even the larger Switch, I struggle sometimes with menus. That's the developers' fault more than Nintendo. But the um, but the actual um, just the construction of it, they would be pr- they would very much uh, see that as something worth giving a child, for example, for Christmas. And so that's the two hundred pound question. Do you think you should go and get one? Absolutely. If if you're not bothered about plugging it into a TV. This is the switch to get. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too. Until next Friday, pip pip.